Orgasmic Enlightenment, where the sexual and spiritual come together. I'm Kimanami, and I'm a holistic sex and relationship coach and a vaginal weightlifter. In this show, we explore all things intimate. I believe that our sexual energy is life force creative energy, and we can use it to shape our worlds, strengthen our relationships, and self-actualize. I blend the most avant-garde information from neuroscience, ancient sexual practices like Tantra and Taoism, to renegade wellness modalities to show you how to create gourmet sex in your lives. Come one, come all. Breast is best. If you have followed my work for any period of time, you know that I talk about the Anami Guarantee. The Anami Guarantee states all people, all experiences, meaning all women can have vaginal orgasms, G-spot orgasms, cervical orgasms, and ejaculate across the room and shoot ping pong balls with their vaginas. All men can have sex for eight hours straight and learn how to separate orgasm from ejaculation and have rock hard erections through their 70s and their 80s. Yes, everyone can. They are not just special experiences reserved for some special or lucky people. And no, there aren't just some people who for whatever reason can't do any of these things. So let's flip that lens onto pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding. In the allopathic mindset, the constant refrain is some variation of, you can't, we can. You can't heal yourself. We or this drug or this surgery can. You can't birth this baby. This needle or this knife or this IV drug can. You can't feed your baby. This bottle with a disgusting mix of immune damaging and carcinogenic chemicals can. This is all bullshit. I have done many episodes on how OBGYNs are the great make work project of the century by removing women's faith in their own bodies and in nature themselves, they have created a profession for themselves based primarily on fear and on women dissociating from their own bodies and their inherent wisdom. So what we know about the hospital birthing protocols is that instead of helping to cultivate oxytocin, a woman's natural pleasure, pain-relieving, orgasm-producing, and birth-progressing hormone through a natural, relaxed, loving, and warm environment where oxytocin thrives, the crisis-oriented strangers walking into the room every few minutes, all kinds of people shoving their hands up a woman's vagina and making her lie in the bed, actually tying her into the bed, attached to medical equipment, all of these things make her oxytocin go away. Of course they do. Her body, just like any other animal perceiving danger, tells her that it is not safe to give birth right here and right now, and it stops the process. So in addition to all the problems and risks to newborn health via all of these manufactured interventions is the final result that the woman after a birth like this, rather than being filled with all of the oxytocin bliss, the pleasure, the literal orgasms, she doesn't have any of that, right? And what is the hormone that we need most to produce milk? Breastfeeding, milk production, letdown responses, it's oxytocin. 
So women, rather being in this blissed out state of all kinds of oxytocin, hormonal bliss, is generally in a state of shock and PTSD because of what's just happened to them. And probably because of that, they aren't producing milk right away. So then a heavily subsidized hospital member comes up hands her a bottle with formula in it and voila, a formula-fed baby and a I just couldn't breastfeed mother are born. So on a much more positive note, you can change this direction. Countless women have. They take the power back into their own wombs and vaginas and breasts. And through the act of sovereign birth, they rebirth themselves. And they truly lay claim to the shamanic, goddess, life-giving power that it is to be a woman. Being pregnant and giving birth and breastfeeding have been some of the most amazing experiences of my life, where divine forces opened up and the veil between worlds is lifted. And as a woman, you claim your role as the facilitator and the giver of life. This is the true magic and power of being a woman. And historically, like let's say in indigenous cultures with tribal people, these ideas have been celebrated. Women have been heralded as the great connection between the two worlds. Their wombs are that connection. The cervix is literally the doorway between life and death and the other dimensions. I am here with Jennifer Grayson, an award-winning journalist and author focused on the environment, human evolution, and social change. She is the author of the book Unlatched, The Evolution of Breastfeeding and the Making of a Controversy. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. I'm a fan of your work, so I'm excited to be here. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to riff all over this topic. So let's kick it off with a bit of, you know, your journey into this. So despite being exclusively formula fed yourself, you began to think about the true impact of missing out on this profound connection when you became a mother. So your book documents your worldwide search for answers about the first and most fundamental experience of newborn life. In your book, Unlatched, you go through our history of breastfeeding all the way from biblical times to 18th century France to modern day Mongolia, and there's some wonderful stories out of that, to (laughs) inner city Los Angeles to describe how we've developed our current disconnection to breastfeeding. So this whole, the whole controversy around breastfeeding, is this a more modern thing or have there ever been debates or questions about, you know, whether breastfeeding was a good thing to do or not, or is this primarily a modern conundrum? It's completely a modern conundrum. It is, it is, um, the truth of what's happened in our industrialized society, where we basically become detached from every biological process. I mean, how to detach from the nipple. Yeah, unlatched from breastfeeding, this essential biological function, um, detached from what's considered normal for sex, detached from how to interact, how we have throughout human history. I mean, it's safe to say that people for, uh, you know, 2 million years, 7 million years since we split off from chimps, we're not corresponding on Skype. So like we live in this world where everything is completely um, industrialized and not anything like it has been. And the same is true for breastfeeding. So when you look at it, the, all the change really happens so quickly. So a hundred years ago, uh, and for most of human history, every baby 
on earth was nursed from anywhere from two and a half to seven years. You know, we know this from the anthropological record. Uh, and really the, the controversy uh, of breastfeeding versus formula, formula feeding wasn't even an option until industrialization in this country. It, it literally didn't exist. When and did so, formula feeding start? When did they, it, didn't yeah. they come up with formula? Well, that was one of the interesting things when I set off in this journey. And first of all, I, I should say this was a book I never imagined writing. I mean, you, you introed me by saying I was exclusively formula fed, but it wasn't as though there was even an alternative that I was aware of. This was just the way babies were fed. I was from you know, like an upwardly mobile Jewish family outside of Manhattan. And this, is, this was the norm at the time of my birth. I remember there was that era, I would say, like in, say, the 70s, where it was almost if you were uh, like upper middle class or beyond, like this was the thing to do. You formula fed your babies like that was kind of a almost a economic or social signifier. Absolutely. And what's so fascinating, we can get into this more later, the situation has completely flip flop. So now you have this vast social inequity, especially when it comes to breastfeeding. But uh people who have time and money in our society now can breastfeed, whereas there's this giant class, underclass of people, partially fueled by the US government, that's another story we can get into too, um, who are basically forced into formula feeding. And so this is, it's completely flip up. But yes, when, when I was born, uh, less than half of kids were nursed at all. Um, in New York City, where I was born, I think it was something like 85 to 90% of babies were formula fed. And so oh. I didn't know, I didn't know anything differently. I had, I never even saw breastfeeding until I was, I think my cousin had her first baby when I was in my twenties. And so it was just this great irony because here I was thinking I had grown up in this very, in many ways, holistic, my mom was super into the health food store before anyone shopped there. I had this kind of bucolic uh, Connecticut existence where I was always outside and planting pumpkins in our backyard. And I really <laughs> thought of myself as having this like, not crunchy. I mean, I was still, like I said, suburban, sort of upwardly mobile, but, but a very old fashioned type of an existence. And so when I had my first child, when I was pregnant with my first child, Izzy, and I, I, there were a couple of big epiphanies that happened and I literally had the realization, oh my God, I was formula fed. These, I, these were the building blocks of my life. And so that's what set me on the path in you know, response to your other question about when this actually happened. When did the shift happen? And I had always thought it happened around the 1950s when we think about that the real sexualization of the breast coming into play, like Marilyn Monroe and the starlets and those cone right. bras. And, but really, yeah. it happened so much earlier. And in fact, sexualization was, was almost like a side effect. What the shift really happened to formula feeding because of what had happened moving our entire society to becoming an industrial society. And so it was, I basically fell down this fascinating rabbit hole of all these things I had never considered before. Um, and I, you know, I had, I was making my start as an environmental journalist. And I admittedly, when I first thought about exploring breastfeeding, I was, I still had personal issues with it. I wasn't completely comfortable with it, even though I was pregnant with my first child and, and knew that I wanted to breastfeed her for, for health reasons. So yeah, it was, um, it was a real journey. <laughs> 
So it sounds like I would say, I just did this podcast on um, radical unschooling, right? Yeah. And how really the creation of the public school system that we see today was born out of a, of a need to make people more obedient and better factory workers, but also as kind of like a babysitting surface for people who were actually factory workers, someplace to put their kids. And I see this really like there's a parallel then with say the invention of formula. If you want to have people easily able to work and you know, be away from the home, then breastfeeding necessitates a closeness with your child. And so if you can introduce this idea of formula feeding, and there's, there's that, but then there's also this whole push to make it normal. Like in my work, I talk so much about the normalization of dysfunction, right? And so for yes. us to adhere, attach to this idea of formula feeding is being just fine or just as good as, or I'm sure that this generation of people we're talking about, say your parents, my parents, make it even better somehow than breastfeeding, right? Is like all conveniently fits this narrative of, you know, separation of the family, but also just making people into more compliant and less burdened workers to just go and do what they're meant to do as part of these cogs in the machinery of society. Yeah. And, and when you talk about being convinced that it's a better thing, and yeah, that was very much the attitude because you have to think about how science evolved in this country too, and, and the introduction of germ theory, and then how doctors really took over processes that had for, for all of human history had been belonged to women, birthing, pregnancy, breastfeeding. There were no doctors involved. There were no men of medical science. And so it very much became these experts took over. And then within a generation, we lost that innate, we lost that innate knowledge. Yeah. Um, but the yeah. fascinating thing, here's the fascinating thing about formula. Uh, when it first started, it was the women who actually started artificially feeding their babies. And so it wasn't as though in the late 1800s, some great formula companies came up with this invention and everyone was like, well, this is convenient. Now I can work my factory job. And people in charge said, well, now these factory workers will become, it, did, it didn't work that way at all. What happened was women, industrialization happened. People started moving to cities like my great grandmother who came to this country from because of the pogroms at the turn of the last century came from Russia. You have 13 year olds working in sweatshops and all of a sudden people out of necessity are no longer with their children. Um, they're desperate to earn a living. They're desperate to, they, they can't be with their children anymore uh, in the way that you have to be in order to breastfeed and nurture a young child. And so they started experimenting with feeding alternatives. And we, it, this is erased from the record now. We know this from an amazing historian who I interview in my book and a lot of the research I did, but artificial feeding was one of the great uh, public health threats of the last century. There were literally one in 10 babies was dying because of mothers experimenting with homemade formulas. And this was before the pasteurization of milk. And so babies were dying of, um, you know, these horrible bacterial diseases of filthy milk. And then so, slowly formula companies evolved, doctors started experimenting with safer things, pasteurization happened, but we were the ones who, who drove it. And that was so fascinating to me. Very interesting. Yeah. So 
One of the things that I see in my work is how sexual disconnection affects women throughout their lives and even men in terms of how they view their girlfriends or their wives when they become mothers. So we're all existing under the umbrella of this Madonna whore archetype, right? And that's really women throughout all religions. Women are either sluts or they're virgins and there's not really this like happy medium for them to coexist. And all of that comes to a screaming head, all of these things that we've unconsciously imprinted around these things when a woman has a baby, right? So breasts are thrown in our faces all the time. We're obsessed with breasts, but when they're used for their true purpose, which is to feed babies, there's this massive dissociation and people can't let the sexual and the sacred part of themselves coexist, right? With this true physiological purpose. And so in your studies, is this a thread that you have seen in the different cultures that you have observed where people who are more sexually open or connected to nature don't experience any of the shame that obviously this is kind of a bred thing? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, it's not even that they're more connected to nature or more open with their sexuality. This was just breastfeeding is the human norm. And so every culture throughout human history up until very recently in a lot of cultures still in different parts of the world that breasts are only seen for feeding babies i mean breasts are only seen as for feeding babies and so there there isn't this they're cultural not sexualized layer. as much they're not sexualized and so one of the things uh, at other, all or as much like there's really rarely and so for instance um the anthropologist kathy detweiler who i consulted a lot for this book uh she pointed me toward have you ever heard patterns of sexual behavior it was done by these two Yale anthropologists. You would love this book. It is okay. fascinating. Uh, basically, these two Yale anthropologists, I think in the 1950s, went and surveyed 190 traditional cultures. And of those 190 traditional cultures, 13, just 13, um, viewed breasts as even sexually attractive. And just 13 employed some kind of breast touching during sex. I don't know how they got this data. So this, I don't know how reliable this is, but this is some sort of glimpse at what it, what it may have been like. And only three saw breasts as sexually attractive and employed, you know, breast foreplay. And so universally throughout all these different cultures, you would hear things like when people would hear about how Americans viewed breasts, they would say men view, men are big babies. They they like (laughs) sucking on breasts like babies. Like it was, it's a shocker in other cultures. It's literally, there are parts of India, even now rural India, where a woman will cover her face when a man comes by, but but pop out her breast to feed a child. Wow. So, so I think it's safe to say that, I, I think it's just safe to say that in cultures where people always practice whatever was the human norm for throughout this was the way to feed babies. There was no alternative. The sexual uh, cultural beliefs came later. This is not to say that that breasts aren't pleasure pleasurable in a sexual right. way. They are. Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't, then we wouldn't. Women wouldn't have breastfed if it wasn't pleasurable. If there wasn't that connection. Well, where do you think that came from then? Where then this sexualization of breasts? If in other, say, in more indigenous cultures, like that wasn't. Yeah the the norm where did this come from well it happened in the two notable instances in our human history are where an entire culture stopped using breasts to feed babies and so there are two big examples i give in my book one is 
the United States and what happened with industrialization. And when breasts literally became hidden from view, then they were ascribed to other purposes. And all of a sudden they were in a way fetishized. And then the other big, the fascinating part of human history that I talk about is really what happened in 18th century France. And also some of the other European uh, societies where women of higher classes who didn't want to breastfeed or had to stop breastfeeding to conceive another child because breastfeeding in the traditional way does suppress ovulation. Right. Uh, right. They would use wet nurses. So before formula, there was wet nursing where they would hire someone else to feed their babies. And in those societies like 18th century France where wet nursing, and I have a whole chapter about this where it talks about what happened in France. Wet nursing was so out of control that only 3% of mothers fed their own children. Everyone was outsourced to a wet nurse in the countryside. And then well, fully, were t- like from beginning to end or just at a yeah. certain stage? No, from beginning to end. Their, wow. their babies were born and they were literally put in a cart and sent off to the French countryside to be nursed by an unknown rural mother. And the mortality rate was like 40%. And so when you had situations like that, where there was women not feeding their own babies on a mass scale, then interestingly, you had all of a sudden, you know, with those plunging bodices from the Marie Antoinette era and um, the rouging of the nipples. And, and so those two things go directly together. There really are no other cultures. Um, well, of course, the ideals of industrial America have spread to the entire world now, which is why right. yeah. we see, you know, all over, it's not just America anymore. You see this, even when I was in Taiwan, um, women are ashamed to breastfeed in public because breasts are seen as their primary function is to, uh, for sexual pleasure. To titillate. So, yeah, to, to titillate, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because they, they become these beacons of sexuality where prior to that they were beacons for babies, right? Like this place for babies to not just nurse and get nutrition, but to seek solace and comfort. And there's some amazing stories. I forget the name of that woman who wrote that article about growing, having her children in Mongolia and seeing the contrast like of these stories of Mongolian women and like breasts being like used to calm women or calm their babies and stop them from fighting to like, do you want to share some of these stories? They're just so hilarious and inspiring and give us such a different perspective on the role of breasts in our culture. They do. I know once you step outside our culture, you realize how incredibly bizarre our ways are. And yet we view cultures like Mongolia, when you first hear about it, it's so shocking. And so Ruth Kamnitzer, who I interviewed for the book, and she had written this article that went viral. She was a Canadian expat. I think she's a biologist and she lived in Mongolia when her kids were, I think her son was little. And realized soon after she got there that breastfeeding children in Mongolia till age seven, till age eight, till age nine is the norm. And not only is it the norm to breastfeeding children, breastfeed kids for a very extended period of time. Well, I, I'm saying now very extended. It is the norm two and a half to seven years. You look at most traditional cultures easily four to seven years. I nursed my oldest till she was four. My younger one, I nursed till she was seven. So even I, it's still embedded. Like I say extended breastfeeding, but even I did well, it. I would look in my brain. I would say 
after maybe age four, I would consider, I would classify as extended breastfeeding. You yeah. know? And I think anything age two, three to me, to me is normal. Right. Right. And then beyond that, maybe we're getting normal. Like, I mean, that's what it every, in my view, every child ought to have. Right. And then beyond that is sort of like up to whatever circumstances that people, but I feel like that's a really important, if, you know, if I was to be, let's say having another baby, it would be like, you know, really rearranging my life to know that for those first three years, like I need to be yeah. able to be on demand, you know, to breastfeed a child and then whatever kind of happens after. And, and after that, anyway, it becomes less, it's not a primary food source. And so it's more supplementary or there's other, you know, attachments involved, which I still think are positive. People, you know, can anyway, but let's get back to. Yeah, I know there's so many changes. I mean, the food source, it, breast milk is so much more than a food as I discovered. And, and the emotional connection, there have been no studies. We don't even know what, what the science has yet to quantify what that means to our emotion, our, our emotions and our, right. our intellect, how that develops that extended nursing period. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's interesting as I surveyed different cultures, the standard was like two and a half to four years when you're having multiple kids and then the baby usually ends up because there's no kid that comes after ends up yeah. getting nursed for seven years or more, right. which is, you know, my baby, yeah. I don't think we're having another. So that's why she kind of held on longer than I thought. But in Mongolia, yeah. So they have this saying, I think that the best wrestlers are breastfed for seven years. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and the most shocking thing to, to our culture in a place like Mongolia is that when a baby is crying or a mom's not there, another mom will step in and nurse someone else's baby or a grandmother will step in or even a grandfather will offer like his his nipple to a baby. And right. so it's like this very, Ruth Kamnitzer described it as this, un, the most encouraging place you could possibly be a mother because everywhere you go, not only is breastfeeding the human norm, but you're, it's like people were cheerleading her on everywhere she went. Right. Yeah. Especially because she was uh, from an industrial society like Canada, where people expect, the Mongolians just thought that Americans bottle feed, Canadians bottle feed. And so oh, they, they were shocked that they had that yeah. awareness. Oh, yeah. Wow. So they, they were shocked to see, well, Mongolia has changed a lot. I mean, like every other place, there are very few untouched places now. And even in the, the years since I wrote Unlatched, um, so much has changed because of climate change. The, the traditional herding Mongolians are losing their way of life and more and more people are having to go into the cities. And so what you're seeing there is what happened to us in America at the turn of the last century. And so they, they're seeing industrialization and that movement away from the breast now too. It's just happening mm. far later. All right. So a friend of mine, he was the child of a, a twin. So his mother and sister had their children at the same time. And he was breastfed like back and forth between the two of them. That was just normal, right? And he's got an iron gut. You know, like we've been in situations where we've eaten something and I have been like, say some food poisoning or something. And I've been up all night, like shitting and puking and like couldn't sleep. And he's like yeah. sleeping like a baby. Like he's, we, we talk <laughs> about it, right? Like he's got this iron gut. And I actually, you know, when he told me that I was like, huh, I suspect that you've just had this extra exposure to these different, you know, microbiomes cultivated from your dual breastfeeding, your tandem breastfeeding breastfeeding situation and that's contributed to that so you know this is the thing is that people don't realize that you know I think there's this basic idea of breasts as being 
supplying some food, right? And if you can just give them formula, like what's the big deal? Like kids obviously these days, right, are still alive, right? They're not dying necessarily, maybe later in life though, um, from formula. So it's not immediately obvious that there could be any lack from just having formula, but we know that there is. Like for those people who actually look into it or dare to allow that information into their field (laughs) is that the breast milk does so much more than just provide nutrients. There's this whole, there's the microbiome that gets populated, there's the immunity that gets built in the child. And then there's also this incredible biofeedback loop that takes place, right? Between the mother and the child where the nipples actually get information from the baby about what it needs biochemically. And then these substances are pulled from her body and her breasts, which then turn it into milk. Like I call breasts the great alchemizers, you know? And this is something that formula can never mimic, right? We People can survive on it, but it's really not the same. So what do we know about the emerging science or established science with talking about the components of breast milk including things like immunity and the creation of a healthy microbiome. And then, you know, what are the ingredients of formula and the long-term health risks of being formula fed? Thank you for saying health risks, by the way, because I know that's hard for some people to hear, but it's the truth. I mean, we talk about the the benefits of breastfeeding, but breastfeeding is the baseline. Breastfeeding is the norm and, and anything else, there is a risk. The problem is we don't fully understand it yet because the science is so new. And that's, that's one of the things. Who's that, gonna fund it? Who's gonna fund it? A yeah, well, let company. Me, well, a lot of the oh. research that you see on that says, you know, now with new oligosaccharides or whatever it is that they're promoting now on formula cans, that research is funded by the formula companies, and they can say anything they want because there's no regulation from the U.S. government. So on formula, there's no regulation. What do you, no, what do you mean? There's no regulation. Say, there is no regulation. The formula companies only have to verify that certain ingredients are in there. So that infants can survive. There are nine basic components in infant formula. And so by contrast, we can get more into human milk. But by contrast, we don't know yet what's in human milk. We're talking thousands upon thousands of bioactive molecules, um, immunoactive substances, uh, the microbes and the the oligosaccharides and the prebiotics that feed them, hormones. I, I can go on and on and on contrast it with nine in formula. And we don't know the extent of what's in human milk because the science hasn't been done yet. So science decided that we could map the human microbiome. That's been done. Uh, but we don't know yet. Uh, we, uh, sorry, we, the genome, the human genome. We know every unit of DNA in the human body. No idea the, the miracle, the science of what's actually in human milk. And I don't and think so, anyone would really want to know, you know, unless they're pro breastfeeding, like no one with the serious funds to finance these kinds of studies is going to do it because that's going to show the massive disparity between their product and breast milk. Well, I, interestingly enough, there is a tremendous amount of research uh, from the formula companies. And part of it is so that they can start to put things in human milk to at least market itself as being closer to breast milk. But you're right. I mean, this funding has been, it, it, when Lars, Bo, Lars Boda, he's a glycobiologist at the University of California, San Diego. He's the one who, I wrote this whole chapter, he studies these oligosaccharides, these sugars that basically prime the baby's microbiome. They're specific to each mother and her baby. Like each mother makes her own pattern that's unique to her baby. So you talk about like priming the gut and, and your friend 
And so, yes, I mean, <laughs> if he got those two different uh, oligosaccharides and microbiomes, it, there's no way to quantify it. There's no way to know, but it's, it's interesting to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I totally forgot my train of thought, but I, I will just say, I was going to say one more thing, which is, this is what set me off. One of the real aha moments that set me off to write this book, because I have had chronic health problems my entire life. I mean, severe chronic health problems. I was basically, I couldn't do much for most of my twenties and it took a long time to figure out what was going on. And all the doctors I saw from the top neurologists uh, to the most holistic doctors to nature, that's literally everyone I saw, no one once asked, what were you fed as a baby? Right. And so here we have, you're supposed to be exclusively breastfed for the first six months of your life, according to the World Health Organization, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. You're supposed to be breastfed continuously once food is introduced until two years or more. I mean, these are the building blocks of human life. And I was fed, you know, I got this formula sample package when I was pregnant with Izzy and I turned it over and I looked at the back of the cart and I was like, you know, hydrolyzed corn syrup, milk protein solid. This is GMO, what I was fed. GMO yeah. seeding. G- and, well, gut. thankfully there were no GMOs when I was, because exactly. I was born in 1979. So yeah. I think my health problems would have been much worse. I'm so lucky. I really don't have any um, of those big allergies that you're starting to see now, food allergies since the introduction yeah. of GMOs. I mean, it was, it was actually, I know this sounds so silly, but I knew I had been formula fed as a baby and I knew that to be true. I was pregnant. I knew I had planned on breastfeeding, but when that formula package arrived in the mail, a formula marketing package, I should say, I mean, these are, this is sent out by the formula companies to try to hook moms on formula or try to introduce doubt in their mind. And it did for me for a second that, oh, I might need this. I might not be able to breastfeed, you know, uh, to plant that seed. And I, my husband said, what are you doing putting that aside like with all the baby stuff what what is in that stuff and by the way we are i have been writing about the industrialized i've been writing this column for the huffington post about the environment and industrialized food and i have always been a from scratch cook and everything organic and i still was like doop to do maybe i need this just in case and he said and that's what is in this stuff so many decades of programming right this idea that women can't even if you are looking at another way that there's still this really powerful message that, oh, and, and there's and also this permission given, oh, it's okay. It's okay if you don't, don't worry about it. Don't feel bad about it. And it's like, no, we don't want to shame women. But at the same time, this is a really big thing, you know, breastfeeding a child. And so to just sort of give up on it really easily or not even take it seriously as a very important part of their life and especially as a seeding part of their life. Yeah, so needs more examination. Right, I, I agree, and I think that the, the toughest thing to realize is that most women, most American women, want to breastfeed. I mean, the statistics now you have even when I was writing it, it was like seventy-eight percent of women start out breastfeeding in the hospital. Now I think it's I have it right here actually, eighty-four percent. So it's really gone up. Eighty-four percent of women start out wanting to breastfeed, and then nearly half give it up within a few weeks, either by completely or by supplementing with formula. And it's, Why? so Why? it's, it's looking at, there's so, it's looking at all the factors. I mean, that's so much of what the book is about. So mm-hmm. it's the influence of the formula companies. It's the fact that we're the only country in the world without, of like two other countries in the world, uh, without paid parental leave. And right. so women have to go back to work 
right after, in many cases, within a week of giving birth. Um, we have, instead of parental leave in this country, we have a free formula program sponsored by the US government that in effect is a giant advertising campaign for the formula companies and 53% of US infants get free formula from the US government. And so when you start to unravel all these invisible forces that no one has talked about, no one really knows about that I, that I uncovered as I was writing this book that surprised me, you realize that it, so much of it isn't choice. Like mothers want to do right by their babies and yet there are all these forces coming at them. Right. Not the least of which would be having a difficult hospital birth where their yes. natural hormonal flow is interrupted, which is pretty much guaranteed in any hospital birth. I would say it would be very rare to go through a hospital birth and not be intervened with in some way, whether that's by giving Pitocin or you know other drugs or you know, the whole situation, like some kind of trauma that's brought in, in that situation, that's going to interrupt the natural production of oxytocin and other hormones that will support an easy breastfeeding process, right? Where yeah. then women come out of that experience and they've been, you know, whatever they're usually violated in some way or some kind of trauma or manufactured crisis. And then they walk out of that with adrenaline and cortisol and almost like PTSD. And then no wonder they can't manufacture oxytocin because the last fucking thing that they're feeling is bliss, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and right. And so they're not in a big, you know, glow of oxytocin, which is what we ideally want and what would facilitate a really, as I said, easy breastfeeding experience. Yeah, I know you can't, that's the thing. You can't talk about the denormalization of breastfeeding without talking about the denormalization of birth in this country. And yeah. we listen, we've come a long way since what used to happen in the 1960s, where my mom told me these stories about my grandmother and twilight birth, where literally, like, yeah. did you ever watch the show Mad Men? No. Okay. Well, there's this scene where like the main character, it's, and she basically goes to the hospital and she wakes up with the stranger in her arms. I mean, the birthing process, women were drugged wow. and babies yeah. were removed by forceps. And so we wonder why there was an entire generation uh, of kids who were not only weren't breastfeed, but had no connection with their parents and all of these emotional problems. I mean, I don't know yeah. a single person from my parents' generation who didn't have some kind of traumatic upbringing. And that's, that's a huge part of it. So I, we've come a long way since then. And, and there has been like the baby friendly hospital initiative, which has helped to bring back rooming in. It's helped to uh, get the formula marking out of hospitals. It's helped to make sure that babies are put to the breast within an hour after birth to help facilitate that process. But that's happening at the same time, we have a 30% C-section rate. And so that has to be reconciled too. So it's, you know, I spoke with so many moms doing the research for this book, including my own sister-in-law who had a C-section birth with my niece. And she was like, I'm literally, I, I was in labor for two days. I had a very traumatic C-section. I'm puking on the table. I'm shaking from the withdrawal from the medication. And then they hand me a baby and say, okay, breastfeed. And she was like, if there could be a hell, that was it. <laughs> And so we're trying to reintroduce this very, um, not just primal, but like biologically normal thing, which we don't know how to do anymore in a world that's so technologically advanced and, and we're not there yet.
And it's so hard for so many women. And I didn't really understand all those struggles before I wrote Unlatched. Yeah, well, I can see, like I said, that that all of that, like the hospital driven birth experience is going to, women would be lucky coming out of that if it was an easy thing to breastfeed. Because it's just, like I said, even from the strictly hormonal perspective, it's not really geared in their favor for that to be able yeah. to happen. Right. Oh, and then absolutely. if you're scared and like somebody also then just hands you some formula and you know, the breast milk isn't coming because why would it, your body's in a state of shock and like literally being arrested, you know, from this trauma, then it's not going to function and like go into that, you know, to a healthy letdown state. So people get, you know, brought in and then like they get introduced. So, so there's so many different elements to breastfeeding that, people again don't realize are connected so you know something i've explored in the recent years is jaw development so when you're using you're sucking from a bottle and a false nipple with a bottle people end up with these v-shaped upper palates versus when you're breastfed the tongue has to work harder in a different way to suction the nipple at the top of the mouth which actually expands into a u-shaped palate and people can have all kinds of problems, everything from sleep apnea to whatever, like TMJ, because of this, you know, improper jaw development that's happened as a result of having a bottle. Yeah, that's fascinating. I did not come across that research, um, but not surprisingly, because you know there isn't this research at all done. I mean, we have like thousands of studies on erectile dysfunction, and no tests or studies really to determine the normal functioning of our mammary glands that are supposed to sustain human life. And so, yeah, um, yeah I, you know, I, it's interesting because Peter Hartman, I, who I interviewed in the book, um, he, he was the one who discovered that, that the reason why a latch is so important is because it's actually the lips that form that really strong latch and, and that supply also, no one knew about supply and demand before his research right. either that it's not, women think they have to take all of these uh, like galactagogues, I, I, I never know if I say that right, but like oatmeal yeah. cookies and stuff, but it's really the baby being at the breast. And like you said, that motion, um, the mechanics that stimulate the breast, the hormonal exchange that happens between the baby and the mom that, that signals how much milk should be produced. And so, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting uh, theory and I would, definitely be interested to explore more. Well, I wish I'd known beyond about. a theory. Like there's people who, oh, there's people who are studying it. it. Oh yeah. yeah. Like who've, and they've even compared the jaws of people prior to whatever industrial diets or, you know, prior to formula feeding. Right. And their jaws are these beautiful giant, like, you know, uh, strongly developed upper jaw, wide palate. And then you've got sort of like Western versions of that, which are like crooked teeth, oh, narrow yeah. palate, you know, all of this stuff is can actually connected to breastfeeding. I mean, there may be oh, other. Oh, hundred percent. Like the work of Weston Price. Weston Price, you're talking about. He was, yeah, totally. Oh, yes, and I'm familiar with that. And what's amazing is that for all the people I hear talking about traditional diets, very rarely do people mention breastfeeding. What really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's that book, um, Blue Zones, where Dan Buettner. Oh, yeah. He was, and he goes all over and talks about what why all these people are centenarians all over the world and these diets for traditional long life. There's no mention of breastfeeding. Like why these people are so vigorous and healthy. Well, a hundred years ago, those Sardinian people were probably breastfed. 
So of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. The, all of that is is so fascinating, and um, I wonder if we return to a world where breastfeeding was normalized and people were breastfeeding, like would that return or is that, has that been lost forever? Gosh, I mean, I would think it would return, you know, like you yeah, just, yeah. it might take a few generations because you're, there's, you're probably bringing in things from your parents and your parents, well, parents were definitely breastfed, but it would be sort of my generation that would have been starting, I think the bottle feeding and then, yeah. Perhaps my parents were not breastfed. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the real drop in in breastfeeding happened like the 1920s to the 1940s and 50s, and so by like 19 late 50s, the vast majority of babies were not breastfed. So yeah, my parents were not. I don't even know. Like maybe my great grandmother, maybe my grandparents weren't breastfed for very long either. Looking at the statistics, they probably weren't. So this right. has been all of these. Uh, changes. And we know that this whole field of epigenetics that's emerging and, and how genes get switched on and then pass the next generation, like it's been happening for a few generations now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just so, and getting back to the microbiome, if you don't mind me just yeah. saying one more thing, yes. that's the most profound thing, oh, really? thing to think about because the microbiome is passed down from mother to child through breastfeeding and through birth. And that was an yeah. unbroken chain for millions of years. And so that's a really profound thing to think about. That is a very profound thing to think about. And I mean, what else would you say are the benefits of being breastfed that you just cannot replicate with formula? Yeah, well again, see it's so imbued, like there aren't benefits to breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is the human norm. It's the risk of not breastfeeding. Right. Um, okay. Well yeah. then let's turn it back the other way. Yeah, what yeah. are you risking and not potentially getting or not yeah. getting? So, we only, interestingly, we know only, the science only knows based on what we can look at from an epidemiological standpoint to like a baby is young adult age. And so like, for instance, we know increased risk of gastrointestinal illness, respiratory illness, um, diabetes, obesity, sudden infant death syndrome, uh, increased risk of ovarian and breast cancer for moms. But the truth is we don't know. We have very limited data because these studies have never been done. They've never been done in the long term um, because the, the scientists who are studying breastfeeding, I mean, one of the top lactation scientists in the world is my age. And when she first started, she was like a graduate student uh, in anthropology and wa wanted to know what the studies had been done for primate milk synthesis so she could study it in humans and there had never been any done. So it's, we, we don't know, but what we do know, considering that throughout human history, up until basically 1900, every human being throughout history was breastfed and was breastfed on average from two and a half to seven years of age. What we have on our hands is probably the greatest experiment in infant feeding mm -hmm. in human history. So I know that's a hard thing to hear. I mean, that's a hard, I know there are moms listening who who weren't able to breastfeed. It won't help if we're just shaming people and it won't help if we're just feeling guilty. We have to look at this head on and say, this isn't normal. We don't know the long-term health consequences. And how can we rectify some of this? Because there are some things we could do that would really, really make a big difference. And we could do it, we could do it relatively quickly. Like what? Paid parental leave. 
right there. I mean, the vast majority of, of moms who start out breastfeeding, they stop and it's because they have to go back to work. That's a huge thing. So for women in those situations, and is pumping just become too labor intensive that they just stop? Like if they have to go to work and they try to pump for the day, I can, I didn't ever do that, but I could imagine it would be a lot. Of yeah. Fun. Did you, so you didn't pump. I barely pumped because I was a work from home mom. I had like one of those single side pumps and I never used it. And my kids actually wouldn't take a bottle. So even when I left, I had to like spoon feed them and I just never left until they were older. Um, I realize most moms can't do that. Pumping is a nightmare. There is no mom who likes pumping. And yeah. quite honestly, like, why are we the only country in the entire world that is forcing women to go back to work and substituting it with an industrial machine that makes companies a lot of money and that actually doesn't replicate breastfeeding? It's, look, it's a great substitute to formula, yeah. but it's sure, really arduous. Right. It doesn't mimic that you don't, you don't get that hormonal exchange that dictates right. your supply and you don't yep. get, you don't get the bonding. And so we have done no studies about what the consequences are of an entire generation raised without their parents nearby. I mean, the vast majority, we're talking about like 70% of parents with kids under the age of one are working and have their kids in the care of someone else. Yeah. What are the, what are the emotional consequences of that? What are the psychological consequences of that? So I think if we live in a society, I mean, I, if we live in a society where we're all responsible for each other and we, we do have this globalized society and we aren't in little tribes anymore and we want humans to be healthy and we don't want to have skyrocketing rates of obesity and cancer, we are going to have to make some concessions and get over this idea of every man for himself in America and realize that like, it wouldn't be the end of the world if women had six months of paid leave and we could figure out how to do it. And we'd have a lot of healthy kids. Yeah. I mean, when I talk about this in my program, you know, I tell people, look, try to make space in your life for at least a couple of years, you know, to be available to breastfeed, just to be able to breastfeed your child, you know, yeah. and whatever that looks like to plan if, if people are planning their birth or their pregnancy to build in that space, like whether that means you move someplace where you have less rent or less mortgage or, you know, cheaper, whatever that means, like that you can accommodate that because it's that important. Yeah. And I think you're a great example because you did that and you're very successful. And like, there's a wonderful author, her name's Erica Komisar, who wrote this book called Being There, Why Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And she says, mm. like, if you're lucky, most of us, there's life is very long. And you can do everything you want, just not at the same time. Right. And so I, I felt the same way. I would have rather lived, I mean, when Izzy was born, Matthew, my husband, had just been unemployed for years. Uh, we moved to that apartment so that we could afford our expenses. I mean, I didn't want to go back to a full-time job. And yeah, we ate a lot of beans and rice. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it was okay. We still had fun. And, and look, I realized... I come from a place of advantage to even be able to do that. Like, so that I, we lived hand to mouth for a long time so that I could be with my kids. But as I discovered when I like went to go explore the federal WIC program and what it's like for women who come from Guatemala and Mexico and who are working, you know, in sweatshops and their situation, it's not the same thing. And so not everyone can do that. 
Right. Or should we have to force people to do that? I mean, quite honestly, like it's I, the greatest joy of my life has been being a mother. I feel like this was what I was put on earth to do, but it's definitely affected my career. Like I, after writing Unlatched, I did not want to go back to writing another book. It took me away from my kids. And so it's uncomfortable sometimes. It really has been sitting with the idea that like, well, they're little and maybe I'm not going to do what I want to do until they're a little older. It's, it's not always easy. Well, I think that's, it's hard as, and we can talk about this a bit too, like in the feminist world, right? And I think that this has maybe contributed to the move towards formula is feminism in a way, because there's this push that, you know, we're free, we can, you know, take the birth control pill, we can use formula, like there's all these things that we can do to be a way from home and be at work, right? That we don't have to be interrupted. We don't have to be victims of our biology. And I think, I mean, look, for me growing up as a teenager, I was probably more in that mindset of like, I got a, you know, I saw a lot of, how can I say, stay at home moms when I was growing up, right? So my big thing was like, (laughs) I'm going to be a career woman and I'm not going to fall into this trap, you know, and I didn't even know I was going to have babies because that looks like that keeps you away from your career, you know? And then it was in my early 20s, I just had some shifts and my life changed direction where I opened up to, like, that was me taking in information and going in a certain, mentally. And then I I had, you know, pivotal experiences that really opened me up and kind of got me more into my truth, right? Rather than other things superimposed upon me, even if they were under the guise of liberation or feminism or whatever. And where I was like, oh, I actually want to have a baby and I want to do, and I want to be that kind of a mother of like breastfeeding and attachment parenting and co-sleeping. And that was the truth and the way for me and extended breastfeeding. And, you know, I was completely committed to that, like from, cause I'm, I'm such a radically holistic person and my values on that are non-negotiable, yeah. right? They're not like, Oh, if it's not convenient, I drop that value. It's like, no, whatever it takes, I keep that value and make it in, you know, reality in my life. So I think that, you know, how do you, how do you see that play out? Because, you know, for some people, maybe they took the feminist movement as a way to more deeply connect to themselves and to their bodies, to treasure menstruation and birth and breastfeeding. And then there would be other people, like I said, who looked at the birth control pill or formula as things that liberate them to make them more independent. So this is understandable, but we see that there are massive long-term costs to this, right? And that controlling our biology shouldn't really be the goal, but merging our, our nature with our culture and coming to view these things as gifts rather than burdens. So what do you yeah. see solutions being where we can move forward as and embrace motherhood and career goals at the same time. And I think you've touched on this with say extended parental leave or just acknowledging that there might be a dip, right? Like for me, I had my son young, I was in my early to mid twenties. And so I, rather than most people who establish their career and then have children, you know, for me, like I was having my son before I established myself as my career. And in some ways I'm really grateful at one always, I think in, in the way that that happened because I was so fully committed and there were so many things about parenting that actually translated into my drive and 
who I did be unfold as in my career that I can directly attribute to being a young parent. So how do you see all of that reconciling? Oh, you frame that so beautifully. And so much of what you say, I feel the same way. I mean, I didn't have my kids as young as you did. My, and it is yet 30, but by like LA, New York standards, I was the first of everyone. I, you know, and I was married at 25. Um, and my mom always told me, she always said, look, you either have your kids young and figure your, out your career later, or you have a big career and then you have to leave it if you want to have kids. And more and right. more, we're seeing that's what's happening. The, age, the average age of first-time yeah. motherhood is going up and up and up. Um, as women wonderfully become more successful and able to work in whatever career that they want to work. Um, but the real takeaway is that for me, and this book, I will say, truly made me a feminist. That, that word made me cringe before I wrote this book. Because I, I, and I can't pinpoint quite why, but I guess what I have come to see is that all of this liberation has happened still within the context of a completely patriarchal society. And so we can't, we should, we shouldn't have to be different. We shouldn't have to sacrifice having kids and being able to breastfeed them if we want to, we should be able to make the choices that we want and society should recognize the beauty and the differences because the truth is there is, we have to come to terms with the fact that there's a consequence for that other kind of feminism. So sure, we can not breastfeed and we can you know, go back to work and have the birth we want. I mean, I, this is a side note, but like when I was pregnant with Izzy, I met a lot of women in LA who were like, I'm not pushing a baby out my vagina. I'm gonna have it cut oh. out of me. Like that's not feminism. That's not making right. a choice to not have to, I mean, that's, that's ignorance. Internalized oppression. It's internalized yeah, yes, oppression. Yes. And, and the same thing happens getting back to the sexualization of breasts. Like what we're a nation that literally surgically cuts open women's mammary glands and puts plastic pillows in it. Like, who is that for? That's not for yeah. women wanting to look how they want to look. That's for the, the people at the top of our society, the people with wealth and power and men you know, dictating what we should look like. And so I think a truly evolved society would look like societies more of the way past, which were societies that honored the, that there are differences. There are differences between men and women and how do we create um, not equality, but equity so that, so that we can do the things that we want to do. And what you see is in societies, like for instance, Scandinavia, everyone holds up as like the beacon of all in enlightened industrial societies, but they have very extended paid parental leave. They have full health care, And a lot of women have their babies very early there because they know they can, they know that they'll be able to afford it. And they know that they'll be able to go back to their jobs and they know that there'll be childcare and that they can keep breastfeeding and have childcare. And so, yeah, I mean, to me, that looks more like a modern um, feminist society than than what we have but right sadly there's no way to you know it's hard to communicate that sometimes it's it's it took me a whole book to do it it's really really nuanced and and it gets translated in the media as just a lot of blaming and shaming unfortunately right and i think this is a really 
crucial point because it's a trap. You know, do you know that there is this, you probably saw it, I think it, I think it was Ogilvy did this ad. It was an award-winning ad about formula a few years ago. Yeah, and I know what you're gonna say. <laughs> Yeah, the, these moms in the park and there's like the breastfeeding moms and then there's the more like career moms who are bottle feeding, right? Or like, or not, what, formula feeding. And then yeah. like one of the, the, what do you call it? The cart, baby cart, what do they call those things? Stroller. The stroller stuff. <laughs> goes, goes running down, yeah. running down the hill and all the moms run to save the baby. And then they all kind of like merge together. Like we don't need to fight or blame each other or shame each other. And look, I would, I would never advocate and, you know, for blaming or shaming anybody. But if we get caught in that trap of not having these conversations because we're afraid that people are going to jump on us for blaming and shaming people, it's like we are fucked you know, and this has been used yeah. against us because I mean, how, how smart could you be? You know, like if you're like a formula company and you even help perpetuate these ideas, no, we can't blame women for, 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 uh, what do you call it? Formula feeding. You know, it's like, that's in their advantage to reinforce the division and covering right it's a diversion to get people caught up in this arguing that we're seeing all over the place with the same guise of blaming and shaming when really the truth under then under that gets completely buried of like okay well what are the actual differences between these two choices and do you have this information did anyone give you this information before you made these decisions did you get informed information about this yeah and people get distracted and so i'm really you know, I really stand up against that because I refuse to be, you know, bullied into, oh, you're blaming women. Go fuck yourself. No, no, I'm not. No, nobody's doing that here. But if we cannot have a discussion about facts, then you're in la la land, right? Like, this oh, is yeah. Well, yeah, we're all that formula, the, the warm and fuzzy formula commercial. We're all in this together. So we're going to blithely ignore that two of the biggest formula companies in the world are in the United States and that lobby the U.S. government to promote their products to all of you unsuspecting women. We're, I mean, the formula companies, I spoke with people who off the record and, you know, anonymously with people who worked with formula companies. And this is this is like deep psychology, how they target these ads. And actually it's not all that, it's not all that ambiguous because this is really how advertising works for any product. I mean, Coca-Cola wants you to think that it really cares about childhood obesity. And you know, Tide <laughs> wants you to think that they really care about like you doing your laundry beautifully. No, like it's all to sell a product. And I guess I'm also always innately suspicious of, I mean, I guess everything, maybe that's why I became a journalist, but like, yeah, the part of the problem is the information isn't out there and the people that we're supposed to trust are, have been, been manipulated as well. And so like you look at the medical establishment, which is who most people turn to now. We're not birthing and breastfeeding. Vast numbers of us aren't doing that at home anymore. And so people are turning to their doctors and, you know, formula companies contribute millions of dollars each year to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Most people don't know that. Um, doctors receive zero to tiny amounts of training about breastfeeding in medical school. They're mostly schooled in the management of formula feeding. And so these are things we don't know. Hospitals are given unlimited amounts of formula for free. They don't have to purchase it so that when they need to give it to moms who need it, it's, it doesn't hurt the hospital's bottom line. So they never even have to confront those decisions. And so it's all these invisible things that 
women don't have that information of how they're being manipulated. But yeah, I'm with you. I, we, have to, we have to talk about it. It's what is more important than the children that we are bringing into the world. There's, to me, there's nothing more important. Yep, absolutely. I agree. So something that I wanted to ask you about was, can we dispel the myth that babies aren't getting anything past six months of breastfeeding? Because this seems to be the time, and maybe because this is the WHO guideline where people are told that ideally babies are exclusively breastfed up until this point, and then people will start to incorporate other foods into a child's diet. But this really discounts the truly magical properties of breast milk and the bonding and the emotional connection. So, you know, what do you say to that when people would argue that, oh, you know, beyond six months, like nothing's really happening anyway. So what's the big deal? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And the guidelines are so murky that most people don't understand them. So exclusive breastfeeding, you're supposed to exclusive breastfeed for the first six months, which means no food, no water, um, no, no formula. But then you are supposed to complementary feed. Like once babies get curious and they start eating solid food, like right. when my daughter yeah. started reaching for stuff at the table, you're supposed to, the guidelines are for the World Health Organization, you're supposed to continue breastfeeding. Their recommendation is two years or more. Even the American Academy of Pediatrics says one year or more. So ideally you would be, and by the way, that was a political decision because they thought that most American women would never, I mean, they would like gasp in horror at the World Health Organization <laughs> recommendations. So really like I trust the World Health Organization, but ideally you're supposed to On some things. nurse. Yeah. On some yeah, things. Uh, yeah, I think okay. back in the day, they actually used to have be a source of legitimate information. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that now, but this is older information that I would still say is decent. I would say for breastfeeding, they have amazing breastfeeding researchers and public health guidelines from the World Health Organization, at least from the research yeah, I've done. I think sure. you, you can trust their breastfeeding recommendations because quite honestly, those are designed for countries where there are no clean supplies of water. People can't readily afford formula. And so if babies aren't breastfed for two years or more, they die. It's the number one way to stop um, diarrheal diseases, infectious diseases. Yeah, so, um, so you, first of all, I mean, you have the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization saying you should breastfeed beyond six months. You're just, that's the point at which you don't introduce formula, you introduce food as a baby is interested in food. Um, right. And that's because babies' immune systems aren't complete until the age of seven. And so when you're talking about like priming a microbiome, preventing infectious disease, uh, all of those things, we have no we know that that in situations where older babies are not breastfed in areas of the world where they need to be, infant mortality skyrockets. And so there is, there, it's just not true. And I mean, <laughs> let me interject there. We yeah. know that the U.S. has the highest rate of infant mortality in the developed world. Uh, that's 100% right. And maternal mortality as well. Yeah. So in terms of benefits of breastfeeding, is there anything that we haven't addressed or at the same time, health risks of not breastfeeding that we could actually describe? Yeah, well, the health, the health risks, and that really that's how we should frame it because breastfeeding is the human norm. So anything that's different is really a risk. And that's how it's described in the, in the medical literature. That's how it's described by the U.S. government. Um, and they're very, there are some really clear ones. There's increased risk of infectious uh, 
respiratory diseases and gastrointestinal diseases. And we're talking about things that, that can kill children. I mean, we're not just talking about like a tummy bug, especially in third world countries. Um, increased risk of diabetes, of obesity, of sudden infant death syndrome, um, increased risk of ovarian and breast cancer in the mother, because think about it, there's a real hormonal shift. But obesity is the biggest one that's really starting to come to light. And I, I think about uh, you know, what the research I did in the book about the federal WIC program, this free infant formula What's the program. WIC program? What the WIC program, for? it stands for Women, Infants, and Children. And it's a nutrition assistance program run out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And ostensibly, I mean, look, it's like, it's become this beloved program for anti-poverty activists uh, and nutrition advocates because it, it provides nutrition assistance like supplemental food packages to women, pregnant women, children under the age of five. But paradoxically, it has also become the biggest purchaser of infant formula in the country. They supply infant formula to more than half of all American infants. And so when you look at when this program was created in the 1970s to today, child obesity has tripled. I mean, child obesity is epidemic in this country. And here is a missing piece of the puzzle that we haven't looked at yet. And so that's really profound um, and, you know, kind of terrifying when you think that when you look at inequity in this country, I mean, this is a, a program for the nation's poorest, poorest children. And what I uncover it, through a very, very long chapter is basically that the U.S. government, we, we created all these milk surpluses through subsidies that started way back generations ago. And in essence, we are offloading our excess milk surplus in the form of infant formula to our nation's poorest children. The consequences of go. which may be diabetes and obesity. So, so we're not just talking about reduced risk of ear infections here. And, and all of this should give anyone pause and should say, make people think, well, we need to, we need to look into this more. At least let's look into this more. Like I said, breast milk is not a food. It's a, it is a living tissue. That's what the, but lactation scientist Lars Boda told me. And so it's all of the things that we don't know that are in it, the thousands and thousands of components. I mean, one analysis of protein that's been done recently found that there are 1500 distinct types of protein in, that are specific to breast milk. And so all of those things, it's ridiculous to think that they somehow just stop, like your, your body just shuts off, even if you keep nursing past a certain age, there's no timetable. Otherwise, throughout history, you wouldn't have seen such extended periods of nursing. There's, something wouldn't have been perpetuated. If, if something isn't beneficial from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't persist. One of the arguments that I see, and I don't even know if I'd call it an argument, is more of a snarky reaction to extended breastfeeding is kind of like this, oh, you're going to spoil your kid, or oh, that's kind of almost like a sexual thing that they attribute yeah. to it. And, and so what do you say to that? Like, obviously, I would just kind of roll my eyes to that, but I, that's quite common. I saw somebody recently post something on Instagram about extended breastfeeding, and I was pretty shocked at the ignorance and stupidity, you know, that people would come in at on the side of, oh, that's, if they're old enough to bite, you know, it's like, it's creepy. It's like, it's, 
whatever, you know, just juvenile stuff that they had to say. Yeah. And I guess to me, it's, it's symptomatic, one, of being sexually repressed and, you know, suppressed and, and B, because they really have no idea what breast milk does. And C, like that they so much themselves sexualized breasts that they, they're like, no, titties are for like looking at and, and jerking off to. They're not for for milk for babies like what are you talking about those are my titties <laughs> yeah just this like you know sort of viewpoints like that how would you counter them yeah well that I and mean, that was one of the things that sent me off to write on latch too that the, in the world in a culture where breasts are sexualized the two biggest obstacles a nursing mother faces is breastfeeding in public because every time you want to nurse your baby in a world where those are sexual oh objects yeah i mean yeah. i I literally went, there was a story I tell in my book when I went to my internist's office because I was having like a follow-up about, it's another story. But anyway, I was nursing Mika, my little one, in the office and the doctor came over and took one of those exam table paper covers and like fashioned me a nursing cover, like oh draped it over me. Gosh. So like even medical professionals supposedly well acquainted with the workings of the human body. Um, think that breasts are sexual things too, even though breasts aren't. So this is the first thing I'll say, the breast is not a sexual organ. It's not even a secondary sexual organ. It's a secondary, it's a secondary sex characteristic, which signals that someone is ready for, is reached sexual maturity. So, you know, I, I often ask like, well, why don't we use pubic hair to sell cars and beer? Um, you know, they're like, this is something that is completely cultural. And so the first thing that's really tough is nursing in public. And the second thing is the extended breastfeeding issue, because in a world where we think that breasts are only for sex, then of course, like it's once a child can ask like mommy, I want milky and say right. that in a world where it's sexualized, it seems incredibly sexually perverse and demanding when in fact, we don't, because we're so cult, we're in this bizarre cultural bubble. We don't realize that like, that's completely normal even in many cultures throughout the world. So yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, it, look, it just comes down to uh, normalizing it. Like the more people who do it, yeah, even when I first started yeah. nursing, I was very self-conscious about nursing my, I ended up tandem nursing them actually, but I was very n nervous about it. And now I see it more and more. And it's, I think hopefully that's like on its way out, that idea that, yeah. that older children shouldn't be nursed. And really also there's this whole thing I haven't even touched on yet where all of that emerged um, based on really faulty parenting advice from doctors of the last century when all of a sudden people had to do like industrial work and farm work and it was like, well, no, we're on a timetable now. So you can't feed your baby whenever you want. Teach them early that life is hard, that they have to work right. 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day. And so, so much of that is just imbued from this horrible state that we find ourselves in now. Yeah, absolutely. So I look, I was the opposite. I had my breasts out all over the place. I didn't care like whoever, whatever. I'm like, this is important, you know? And, yeah. and I think, I think that something that I, I teach in my work overall is when you have genuine confidence and conviction that way, you can't really be fucked with, right? It's like, I think it would probably be the more timid, shy person who's better like target for, it's like nobody ever, ever hassled me about public breastfeeding. 
They wouldn't dare. Yeah. I'm my sure. Other, well, it was just like, it, this is normal and I'm doing it and I didn't care, you know, like whatever. I had no shyness, like that maybe that's part of it too, is I don't have body shyness, but yeah. that was just like all over the place and I was happy to do it and nobody ever, ever, ever bothered me about it. And so- you where know, did that come I, from? Like, what was your, do you mind if I ask, like, where do you think that comes from? Perhaps some of my own sexual, you know, comfort and like yeah. comfort with my own body. But I think, I think prior to that, I had also been, and then conviction for the, the rightness of breastfeeding, right? right. Like I was very, yes. very convicted to that. Like, and I said, my, I'm non-negotiable about these things. And then also prior to that, I'd been exploring a lot of different alternative communities where nudity was acceptable. Like, you know, we would be yeah. going to nude saunas or go nude swimming or nude sunbaking. And so I was comfortable with my body all over the place, right? So public nudity wasn't like a thing, not that I was super exposed, but the idea of that, like yeah. I had zero discomfort around it. So I think combined with that, with my own body acceptance and my conviction around breastfeeding made it sort of, you know, impermeable, right? Like I, I was just here it is like take it or leave it. if you don't like it get the fuck out you know like but, yeah. but then it never ever got to that right there and i wasn't sitting there like like fighting energy yeah, like yeah, i just dare you to take a piece <laughs> it was just like completely you know completely in my element and comfortable and loving it and so beautiful right like breastfeeding is to me one of the most beautiful things of being a mother yeah and so I think all of that combined just imbued me with a layer of perhaps protection, right? Where I was just insulated. Yeah, I love that. That's so awesome. I wish I had felt that way when I first started nursing, although maybe I wouldn't have written Unlatched. So yeah, it's, it's such a huge part of it. Um, I have that comfort level now. I mean, talking about being changed as a mother, having gone through that experience, and because I knew that this is what I wanted to do, I went down that rabbit hole of like finding out, well, why, why, why is this not okay? And what's wrong with our society? And so I started asking all those questions, but I think on a broader level, like the more women, and I see this now in the younger generations, they are more like, don't fuck with me. I'm nursing. And they're like taking, I never, I'm not really big on, I don't like social media, but like, even when I had to do social media for a match, I was like, I'm not posting. I'm a very private person. Like I was like, I'm not going to post a, nursing selfie. I think I did one, but now there's so many moms who are like, yes, this is normal. And I think it's wonderful. The more we see it, the more normalized it becomes. And so that's why I have a lot of conflict with like, have you seen those nursing pods? Those like at the air, well, no one's really at the airport right now, but uh, it's like a big thing now. They're like these lactation pods where you can go and nurse in private and it says nursing room. Right. And it's kind of like, Yeah. I mean, they're great for, no one wants to pump in public. Like that's not fun. So if you're a working mom who's pumping, sure. Like that's convenient. But the idea of culturally normalizing the idea that you have to go to a breastfeeding room, I think is detrimental. So look, if you're a mom who is like me, who is more on the shy side, like keep doing it. Don't let anyone deter you and get used to it and get that comfort level. But if you're someone who's like, who was like you, then the more people like you, the more normal it becomes. So that's, that's awesome. 
I agree with what you're saying. It, it makes it seem like, no, you have to go hide away to do this. It, it unnormalizes it, right? Because if it's normal, you just do it everywhere, any, any place, it's no big deal. But to say, no, 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 you have to go hide away. I think that energy in itself is already, is like putting a layer of judgment or shame on top yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and you have to remember like our political, um, our policies have to reflect that too. It was only, it wasn't that long ago when I wrote the book, it was still not legal to breastfeed publicly in Idaho, literally not legal. And so, and it's not universal that mothers have a clean, they're supposed to, but a lot of people don't follow the law that they're supposed to have a clean place to pump if they're pumping at work and that they're supposed to have breaks to nurse. There are a lot of exemptions still to that law. So our policies have to also reflect our values because uh, look, if you're a woman who's like ready to fight, that's great. But a lot of women aren't, a lot of women are just yeah. overwhelmed and they have, you know what it's like when you have a new baby and you've never done it before. Well, and, right. And you don't yeah. want to, you don't want to interrupt your flow to generate that energy of confrontation. Right. right? Like yeah. if that's what you feel like you're going to get or somebody's bringing that to you, you know, you're in a blissed out oxytocin. Like that's the gift really of, of, of breastfeeding. You know, one of them, one of the many, it's like, yeah. and then you have to put on a different kind of hat unless you've got a protector around there or your partner's there or whatever, right. To, to then confront somebody in a very vulnerable position when you're in literally in the middle of breastfeeding, you know, yeah. that is really awkward. And that would, to me, that's the biggest bullying you could do is like, do you know what I mean? Like to actually, if someone would to conf confront a breastfeeding woman publicly, I mean, and it happens all the time. And like, who are these people that they feel like they're, it's their mission to, interrupt a nursing mother, but it happens. Like for a long time, I signed up for the Google alerts to follow how often, and it oh, happened yeah. every, every week, there would be some news yeah. story about a mom getting kicked off of an airplane or assaulted in a what? target or like, it's just- Kicked and off why, an airplane for breastfeeding? Or it's happened? Or like, actually, I'm sure kicked off a breast. I think it turned into an altercation because the mom was like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah, or like, called out and by a, a flight attendant saying, yeah, for like saying you have to cover up. Uh, and that's why in some of the other countries I looked at, for instance, like Taiwan, Vietnam, they passed laws that fine people who would kick a nursing mother out of a place. And so like, oh, amazing. I, it's amazing that we live in a world where that has to happen, but true. Yeah. 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 But it helps. So what would you say, is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to touch on? And what would you say that's words of inspiration and positivity for yeah. moms who are thinking of breastfeeding or questioning breastfeeding or just want that extra, you know, push to stay committed? Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we missed, we covered so much and you asked such great questions. So thank you. I can tell you're like so passionate about it. It's great. Um, but yeah, we miss a lot because it's like, this was three years of research. There's, it, when you realize how uh, multi-layered this issue, it's just like, I felt like I wrote 10 books in one. So there's- Is there anything significant that you want to throw in? I get like, I'll direct people to your book, but is there anything oh, no, I know. crucial that yeah. we missed that we should bring into the conversation? Yeah, well, I think it's important, I guess, just to end it on a positive note and to, to empower people. Look, like- like I said, I was an unlikely person to write this book. I was exclusively formula fed. Um, I had a, we didn't talk about it. I had a hard time breastfeeding in the beginning. Uh, and luckily the hospital where I had Izzy 
it was Kaiser Permanente and they had free lactation consultants. Mm -hmm. And I just kept going back and I was like, I'm going to learn how to do this. And it wasn't easy. And the first six weeks, and I've seen this with a lot of moms. I know my, um, my sister-in-law just had a baby, my brother-in-law, sister-in-law, and she was like really committed and uh, her baby was a little early and, and it's, it's not easy in the beginning. And she's, she did it. Like she persevered and she is like a successful nursing mom. I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. I'll ask her and then <laughs> if you have to edit it out. But um, listen, I've known so many moms who didn't realize that because we have lost generations of breastfeeding knowledge that was handed down from all the women folk, that was an innate part of our human history. We've lost that many people don't realize that it, it takes a lot of work to relearn it. But once you get over the hump and like, once you get the help that you need, it makes your life so wonderful. I mean, I didn't breast, I didn't breastfeed Izzy for four years and Mika for seven and tandem nurse them because like I'm some sort of breastfeeding zealot. I did it because it was the most astounding connection I've ever had to another human being in the modern world. It was a way in a world that I find so overwhelming. Um, and so like technologically, it's just too much. It was like this thing that I could do that was how women have fed their babies throughout human history. And so, so it was so worth it to me. And, and there's so much to be gained that's not scientifically quantifiable. And just keep going and don't give up hope and hopefully get the help that you need. Because I, I really think with people don't give up, they, they really can do it. So I wanted to say that I think for some women that breastfeeding may be more challenging, but I would argue that a lot of that is stuff that they've accumulated, maybe like mentally beliefs that they've taken in or their birth experience itself or their own internalized shame around sexuality and being a mother. And so much of my work is about clearing that stuff prior to the experience, right? And then, and that some women, are find it really easy, right? Like it's yeah. not always a struggle for women, but I think that if, if it is, that there's probably reasons. Like there's stuff, as I said, that's accumulated in that person's experience or their belief system or their birth itself that contributes to that. And that can still be worked on. And that, yes, if you're really convicted and have this belief that it's all possible. And I wanted to really validate what you said about breastfeeding being this the most close and amazing connection you've ever had with a human being. That just, that brings tears to my eyes. Like I just love hearing that. And I guess that's such for so many reasons, like the motivation for women to really commit to that process, right? For everything we've covered, but also this transcendent feeling of love and bonding. That's, you know, like really hard to duplicate anywhere else. Yeah. And, the, and think about what that does for your relationship with your child as well to create. I, I've been thinking about it a lot now because because I have my my beloved first nursling is now 10. And it, I got to say, I was, it was easier when they were babies. And it was like, I know breastfeeding is not uh, first nature to a lot of people, but I was just like, oh, great. There's this thing to comfort her. Like it was so yeah. I was just like, I never yeah. second guessed it. I was like, great. And it's, it's so much more um, emotionally complicated now. And I, I think about, we do have that wonderful bond still. Like my kids are 10 and seven and they like, if I'm like, remember Milky, they like still get excited about it. And, and there's this unbelievable connection that I have to them and this physical closeness. And it's, 
yeah. It, it not not just all parenting is easy, so I, it's nice to have that at the beginning of it, you know? Yeah, and I was going to say, as you say that, it made me think, too, that one of the things I think with my son throughout his growing up, you know, was that physical affection, that that was always really, we were always very affectionate. And I think probably, I mean, I'm an affectionate person, but I think born out of that breastfeeding relationship for that to be just very, very easy, you know, that there's a lot of tactile touch and connection that way that is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I will say, look, my mom was... I was formula and my mom was so affectionate. I was raised by a single mom, like, and it was hard for me to come to terms with the fact that I wasn't breastfed because it seemed so antithetical to her whole, how she was as a mother. Um, and that's one of the amazing things about the book too. Like we, we, I explored that with my mom and, and she talked so much about how, like if she had only had the information that we had now that, to that was the choice that she would have wanted to breastfeed like that was what her heart was telling her to do and society wasn't there to support her and so i think we're more aware now of how the gaps in society and if if this is something that you want to do you can you can start researching you know you should start researching way before you're in the birthing room right yeah excellent Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, love hearing, and I'm, I really appreciate that you've devoted this time and energy to getting this information out there. Oh, thank you, Kim. I'm so honored you had me on the show. Really, this was such a pleasure. The modern industrial birth system works against women to be able to access their natural rhythms and responses in birth. It isn't that she can't do these things, it's that her natural system is being hijacked. So what can you do? What can you do to ensure your best chances of an oxytocin, natural, innately guided birth? Well, you can take my sexy mama salon. You can break free of the programming and the lies you've been told, likely since your very own birth, of what women's bodies can and can't do. Because the problem with perpetuating these myths and misinformation like fed is best or formula is just as good is that we aren't addressing the real culprits here. No, it's not women's faults for believing so-called experts. Although the facts and the research are out there for anyone to perform their due diligence, the problem is that we're not laying blame where blame is due. And that is with a hideously corrupt system that is designed to profit off of the misfortune and violence done to women's bodies. So the reason why I have gone into all of this detail, some of this gory detail, to discuss breastfeeding is because it's all connected. To be able to dispel the, I was just one of those women refrains, you have to see exactly where this chain starts and the links that it needs to remain intact. And in the positive way, that is through the divine thread of oxytocin and bliss. This is your price of admission, sexual, spiritual, and orgasmic bliss for the wins. The Sexy Mama Salon is open now for registration. This is the holistic guide to all things conception, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and beyond. Every detail in this program is rigorously researched and I present to you the most potent and avant-garde information available. 
if you are ever considering having a baby, even way off in the future, this program is for you. You have lifetime access to all of the material, so even if now isn't the time, you can prepare and immerse yourself in this education at your own pace, and then you have an epic reference library of all of these practices and info at your fingertips. Here's what Amanda had to say about her birth after doing the Sexy Mama Salon. My birth was all the orgasms that I've ever had and will ever have in one experience. It was one of the most pleasurable moments of my life. You can sign up for the salon via the link below this video or go to kimonami.com, look for Sexual Savant Salons and then click on Sexy Mama. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe and also leave a review and send someone else the gift of a healthy libido and an off the charts love life by sharing this episode with them. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, many happy orgasms.